I'll give a wave like this just to let you know that that joke is over. Okay. I misbehave on stage, but I'm better than when I wasn't sober. Okay, so um, I've sobered up. There's still some blackouts. And, um... I worked in hymens and survived tornadoes and trailers, but that don't mean I won't put in my two weeks later having a good time, baby. Having a good time, baby. We're having a real good time. We're having a good time, baby. Having a good time, baby. I'll tell you one more time. Oh, yeah. We're having a good time. Yeah. We're having a good time. Okay. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the We're Having a Good Time podcast. Uh, my name is Dusty Slay. I'm your host of the We're Having a Good Time podcast. I have a couple of doors closed, but my baby is crying. You may still be able to hear that, but that's how it goes. Let me see if I can close that door. Okay, I closed an extra door. And uh, I may edit out that pause that I just had, or I may not. Who knows? It depends on where we're at with it. But I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's a Wednesday morning. I My schedule in October should uh, really slack up some. September has been a wild schedule. August and September has been a really wild schedule for me. So, um, uh, But October should calm down. October, November, December should not be so bad. So hopefully I'll be able to get back to a weekly podcast. I'm happy to be here. Um, it's a great day. What What is the date? September 22nd. That's not it. Where we've been, where we're going. Where they go. Where they been. Where they go. Where they been. Where we're going, where we've been. Okay, in this podcast, I am going to try to, you know, I'm going to try to keep it light. I got a little story that I want to tell and uh, probably a story that I've told before. I should have did all this before I hit that button, but hey, that's what I did. Uh, and then, um, and then, you know, I'll try to give some encouragement for people that, uh, uh, you know, maybe feeling sad during this time because it's a weird time. I don't even know what's happening anymore. In Nashville, it's been raining for about six days, and it's overcast again today. The sunshine has disappeared. I don't know what's happening. Um, but we're here, and we're having a good time. Life is good. So where we been? Where we going? Where have I been? Two weeks ago, I went to San Diego to the American Comedy Company. And it was a great time. I'd never been to San Diego before. And uh, I got to tell you, I thought it was a great time. I love that city. I've always heard that San Diego is like the best city in the country. People used to say that all the time. And they said the weather was perfect. But then when I landed, I started talking to this guy who was driving me. And he was like, well, it used to be perfect. But lately, it's been getting humid. So I don't know how that happens. Um, everybody always talks about climate change. I tend to think that, uh, who knows what's going on, honestly, but I tend to think that, uh, 
you know, over time, climates can just change. I mean, w we seem to think that we're like, listen, I've always lived here and the temperature's been like this, and now it's different. Um, you know, maybe the earth goes through cycles. Who knows? And everybody gets so mad. And then they go, uh, climate change is happening. We got we to gotta get our taxes raised so that we can stop the weather from changing. Because that's inevitably what everything is. Every time the government goes, hey, we'll fix something for you. Just give us more money. And I think that's wild. <laughs> but San Diego was a great time. Um, and uh, um, the American Comedy Company was really great. I'd never been there before. It's a club in a basement. The staff was great. Uh, the shows were great. My friend Alec Parent um, featured for me. And we went around the city a bit. We hung out outside. Well, the weather was perfect the entire time I was there. We went out to Pacific Beach, which was really great. I didn't get to really spend time out there. I didn't bring any swimming trunks. I never think about those things. I just had jeans. I was the only person out there walking around in loafers and jeans, looking like a real redneck out there. But when I, we went out on a pier that had, um, you know, uh, apartments that you could rent out on the pier, which I thought was really awesome. I had not seen that before, but on a lot of piers, and I had not seen that. Um, and then um, what did we do? We had some food here and there. Uh, masks were back in some places. Uh, for the most part, though, San Diego was pretty maskless, and that was awesome. Uh, seen a lot of homeless people. A lot of homeless people out there, crazy kind of homeless people. I don't like to call people crazy, but we were walking, uh, and this one homeless guy, he had like both hands on his belt, and he looked at us, and he goes, would you like me to whoop your ass? <laughs> and, uh, and we were like, no. I don't know if Alex said anything. He's pretty good about it, but I was like, oh, no. I do still talk to homeless people because I like people. I don't – I'm not – even if they're a crazy maniac looking homeless guy, I still am like, well, that's a person. And uh, they still deserve to be talked to as if they're a person. So the guy asked a simple question was, would you like me to whoop your ass? And I gave him a simple answer, which was no, I would not like that. In fact, I would appreciate it if you didn't do it. Not only would I not like it, but I don't want that to happen. Um and uh, it didn't happen. But throughout the time, I saw lots of different homeless people. A lady, a homeless lady asked me what time it was one time, which I thought was a weird question because I thought that was the main advantage of being homeless is that you don't need to know what time it is. I would think that that is the one thing that you're like, yeah. I've been saying lately, I've been doing a lot of homeless jokes on stage. I don't want to give them all away on the podcast, but I have been thinking, you know, if I were homeless, I think I would want to own a day planner just so I could look at it and go, yep, nothing to do today. I often think about being homeless because, you know, who knows? And I think, what would I do if I were homeless and where would I go Um how would I live? And this is what I think I would do. Depending on where I was at, if I could find some woods, this is what I would do. I would 
earn enough money somehow to buy a hammer. And then once I got the hammer, I would start to find pallets because a lot of retail stores will have pallets that they're either throwing away or that are just free. And I would start to drag those pallets into the woods. And then with my hammer, I would take those pallets apart. I would save the nails and then I would build myself a little tree house. That way I could get off the ground and then I could sleep off the ground. Now, I don't know, maybe people are trying to do this and it doesn't work out, but then I would just build myself a little structure and then I'd put a, you know, put a roof on it with pallet wood. And then I would try to get a tarp, you know, you can get a pretty cheap tarp and I would put that over it. And then I would have a place to get out of the rain because I feel sorry for homeless people the most when it's raining and when it's really cold. So I think getting out of the rain would be my first priority. Obviously you have to eat, but I think we need a lot less food than we, um, than we think we do. In America, we're like three meals a day. I gotta eat a breakfast, I gotta eat lunch, and I gotta eat supper, and I probably need snacks in between. Um, supper is dinner, for those who don't know. Dinner and supper switch up. In the South, when I was growing up, it was always breakfast, dinner, and supper. There was no such thing as lunch. Breakfast, dinner, supper. But later in life, it became breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then supper disappeared. I don't know how dinner got switched like that, but uh, that's what I think I would do if I were homeless. Now, Honestly, what I would do is, is go ahead and try to get out of being homeless. So my first step would be I would go to a church and I would say, hey, I'm homeless. I need help. I just need help finding a job and a place to stay. That's what I would do. And if that church said we can't help you, I would go to a different church, especially if you're in the South. And I can only speak for the South because that's where I live. But there are churches all over the place. And I would just keep going to them until someone helped me. But there is an appeal to homelessness. And I think that's where my appeal to, and I'm way off track here. I know I'm supposed to be doing a where we've been, where we're going. But um, there is a, an appeal to me to the homelessness. And that is just kind of living off the grid and, 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 and no, no paying taxes and no worrying about your schedule and what you have to do today and tomorrow and everything. But I think, you know, the big, the big problem is if you're homeless, finding those woods to live in can be difficult because you don't own any land. Uh, and then if you own land, you can't really be homeless, you know, or jobless because you have to pay taxes on that land. There's no real land ownership unless you can live in a place where there is no property tax. Um, I know that, you know, we own land, but we have to pay tax on it. And then if we don't pay tax on it, then they take the land. So do you really own anything if it can be taken from you? Uh, so, but there is an appeal to the homelessness to me. Uh, in Las Vegas, they say a lot of people live underground in tunnels under Las Vegas. And people really can't get cameras in there, but there are some footage here and there. I saw like Barstool Sports, I think, did a thing on homelessness under Las Vegas. And that seems dark. 
literally because there's no sunshine under there and drug addicts. The homeless just seems to be drug people. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't mean that they meant to be on drugs. I think a lot of people get on opioids. They get injured and then they, the doctor gives them opioids and then they get addicted. I know people that have had situations like that. And it's very sad. I think about the Merle Haggard type homelessness. Not that Merle Haggard was homeless, but Merle Haggard was always talking about in his songs, like, I'd like to catch a train to another town. And uh, that kind of rambling man homelessness seems like it'd be a lot of fun. But um, anyway, that's why I get into the homestead. And I want to say, I saw this, I just found a channel, a YouTube channel today called the the Elliot Homestead. And if you're into those kind of things, uh, it's a lady. She makes really great videos. And she had just some creative stuff uh, talking about being a creative person and also just the homesteading and the ordinary life. I'm very interested in this. I mean, I am working on getting my cabin built out on my land in McMinnville. And then I'm going to try to start to build uh, somewhat of a comics retreat uh, and or I'm not going to try to be off the grid. I mean, I want, you know, power and water and stuff like that. I'm not trying to live like that. But uh, I want to have a simple place, as simple as possible, just a way to to live uh, off the land. I want to farm, maybe get myself a root cellar. Uh, and uh, so I, I got some ideas. So I'm into that. So this, this uh, the Elliott Homestead is, has been a really great video. I just watched a couple this morning. And I thought that was a lot of fun. All right. So back to this. So I did five shows in San Diego, a lot of fun. Then I flew to Seattle, uh, Washington, and I stayed there for a night. I messaged my friend, Timmy Booth, and he came and hung out with me for the night. And we just kind of sat around and talked and caught up. Timmy Booth is a comic in Seattle, and uh, he, uh, we started comedy together in Charleston. So it was nice to see him. And then uh, I slept that night, and the next day, Aaron Weber flew into uh, Seattle, and we got a ride out to Puyallup, Washington, and we did comedy at the Washington State Fair. Puyallup is what it's called, but it's P-U-Y-A-L-L-U-P. So it looks like it's like, pull you up, pull y'all up, pull y'all up, and... Uh, I could not get around. I had to uh, have somebody pronounce it for me because there's a y'all right in the middle and I could not get around it. All I saw was Y-A-L-L and I could not get around that that says y'all. I don't even say y'all a lot anymore. I used to say y'all all the time and I, I, I didn't mean... I didn't mean to never say y'all again, but when I was waiting tables, I remember just saying y'all so much. I'd be like, how y'all doing today? Welcome. Can I get y'all anything? What can I get y'all to drink? And I just said, y'all, 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 y'all. And I just noticed myself saying it so much that I thought, you know what? Let's try to work in some other words sometimes. And then in working in those other words, I just replaced y'all. 
I replace y'all with you guys. I'd be like, and I'm not trying to say you guys. I know that's like a northern thing, but I'd just be like, how you guys doing? Like I would make you guys as southern as possible. But then once in a while, weirdly, people would get offended. I had women go, we are not guys. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't even think about that I was calling you guys. I'm just like being like, hey, people, you know, it's like, uh, hey, peeps, you know, and uh, so it's, um, but anyway, so I was in um, Puyallup, Washington, doing the Washington State Fair. Now, what the Washington State Fair was trying to do is I think they normally will have comics that come in for the weekend and it is, you know, a paid show they were trying a new thing. The guy told me, he said, listen, we've never tried this before, but they brought me in on a Monday night, which is the only way I could have done it. It worked best for my schedule. I do clubs on the weekend. Clubs are what I like to do, uh, and clubs occupy my whole weekend. But the fact that this was on a Monday is why I agreed to do it. And he said, this is a free show. We've never tried a free show on a Monday like this. And then I was in, I was in a big stadium, basically a big arena and it was their rodeo arena. And two days before my show, they had a rodeo. So they pulled all the grass out of there. It was just dirt. And then, um, I was on a, a stage and then the entire rodeo arena distance, probably 50 yards, probably the width of a football field from me to the stands. And typically, I think what they would do was on that grass, they would have chairs or at least people could bring out blankets and sit down. But this was just dirt, just total dirt. So it's a stage, a big stage with um, uh, jumbotrons a very nice setup, booming speakers, and then 50 yards of dirt, and then big stands. So I have 50 yards in between me and the closest uh, customer. Now, there was a good amount of people there, but I want to say you could sit like 6,000 people out there. Okay. Now, I feel very good about my place in the world as a comedian. I work every weekend. I uh, have several late nights. I have a Netflix that's coming out hopefully in October. I feel very good about where I'm at with comedy. But I am not playing 6,000 seat arenas. That's not where I'm at right now, okay? When, when I do the Opry and they sell out, it's about 4,400 people. When I opened for Alabama, it was about 6,000 people. But that was a crowd of people there to see Alabama. I can do it if they show up. I can make them laugh. But in Puyallup, Washington, I'm not a huge draw. I don't have 6,000 people in Puyallup that are dying to see me. Now, there's an argument to, me, to be made whether they should be, but they're not currently. So I did have a good number of people come out and I appreciated them and we had a lot of fun. But as I said, there's 50 yards in between me and the closest seats. So Aaron goes out and does 30 minutes and draws a small number of people from the stands to come and stand right by the stage. And then he did it. He did a great job. And then I go out 
to do an hour. He does 20 minutes and I'm doing an hour. And as I come out, uh, uh, even more people will come down from the stands and stand around me, but still a small number of people. I would say there was about 50 people around the stage and I don't know, a hundred in the stands. But now the sun's gone down and so I can't see the stands at all. And then I got a crowd right in front of me. So it's very difficult to entertain people in the stands when there's 50 yards in between one audience and the next. So I feel like it's just my obligation to entertain the people that are right in front of me. So I basically did, I probably did 20 minutes of jokes and 40 minutes of crowd work. And I had a blast. It was one of my favorite shows I've done in a long time. It was just a weird show and I had a blast. And afterwards, I took a selfie with the audience and we got some nice shots. I got some really cool pictures. If I do post this video, I may, I'll share the pictures of this uh, because I think it was a lot of fun and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, so that was Puyallup. And then I flew home on that Tuesday, Tuesday morning, I flew home, quite a flight, two, two flights. And then I was at home for one day and then I flew to Chicago where I would do comedy at the Chicago Improv, which is in Schaumburg, Illinois, which is just north of Chicago. I had a great time there. Uh, I've been to that club before, uh, but it's been about two years. I had some cancellations due to COVID and whatnot. I wanna say COVID and my appendix had me a couple of cancellations, but I don't know. At least one was because of COVID. So I did that last week. I did six shows, which is uh, quite a lot. I haven't done six shows in a weekend in a while. That's a show on Thursday, two on Friday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday, all an hour each. Uh, so six hours of comedy. It's amazing to think about that, that when I was starting comedy for six years, I did comedy in Charleston, South Carolina, where I could get up on stage uh, at best, four times a week. That would be the best week. I got four times up. And even at best, I would get 10 minutes each show. So that means I would get 40 minutes of stage time in a week. Now that's on a good week. Sometimes I can only get on stage once a week for five minutes. So when you think about that over six years versus this weekend, I got to do six hours in one weekend. It's amazing. And that's why I always like to say that to people because, you know, we all, uh, as comics, all come from different places. It's, you know, not everybody starts in New York City. Not everybody even moves to New York City. So it's like people will say, oh, I've been doing comedy for 10 years. I mean, I did my first comedy in 2004, but I quit somewhere in between there. So it's like for six years, I was doing comedy, writing jokes, but the last seven years, you know, I don't know, from 2014 to 2017, I was a full-time feature. So I was doing anywhere, you know, 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes a show. So I'd be getting, you know, a couple of hours a weekend, but now I get six hours a weekend. It's unbelievable. 
the amount of material you can pump out in that time. I mean, I should be pumping out a lot more, but it comes and goes. I got a lot of new jokes right now that I feel good about, but it's amazing what happens. Comedy is a wild journey. I am pretty exhausted right now, so I don't feel like I'm at my creative peak because I'm tired, but I'm starting to find a weirdness in comedy that I feel like had gone away some, which I'm excited about because... You know, it's like when I was doing comedy in Charleston, I was part of the improv scene and uh, just getting to be weird and creative. And then I started working the road where I felt like, all right, I got to be less weird, more relatable. And now I'm starting to find a good spot where I'm getting to be weird again. And I'm into it. Some may be listening to this and going, when did you stop being weird? And that's a good point. But I think you get what I'm saying. So... I did Schaumburg, Illinois. That was really great. And then uh, Monday night, my friend uh, Mark Anunson, a uh, comic here in Nashville, has been teaching a class uh, at another club in town. And I went to watch his class and give some notes. And I love doing that. I love watching comedy and giving people notes. I also like people giving me notes. So I had a lot of fun. And Mark has a really great class. It was, you know, I think it's like a level two comedy class. I'm not always a big fan of the comedy class because I, I don't know how helpful they are. But after watching this, I thought it was a really great class. I thought everybody, every single person in the class, I thought was like, oh, okay, these, these guys could do comedy. They could really, you know, take comedy to another level. But I feel like every person that does comedy, and not everyone, 80% of the people that do comedy can become a full-time comedy, but also 100% of the people that start comedy can never do anything with it, if that makes sense. It's like, I just feel like the most people, if they decide to do comedy, are funny. They're like, I'm funny in some aspect in my life somewhere. But if you don't work at it, you won't, you won't make it happen. And it's like, that's the important thing is like uh, that finding that person who has the creative creativity, the sense of humor and uh, the ability to uh, work hard. Oftentimes, creatives don't have that hard work ethic. And people, this is a thing that the this Elliot Homestead uh, video I just watched had. She talked about a book there that she read. I don't know. I don't have a lot of the details, but if you go look it up, you'll see the video. And, you know, she talks about, you know, how some creatives, they really like to find that despair and depression and have hardship in their life. And that's where they find their creativity. And I never really got into that. Right. I mean, I, I, I want to have a good life and I want to live as normal life as possible, as, as normal of a life as possible, while also, uh, being creative and doing fun things. I don't need to have despair and alcoholism and drug problems to dig deep and find some jokes. So um, I don't know why I started talking about that. But anyway, um, I don't even know how I got to that place. That's what it's like to sit in a room and talk by yourself. And then last night I did a show at Zany's, really fun show. Uh, my friend Jordan Jensen and Mike Rowland came out and did a guest spot, and they're doing their own show tonight at Zany's, and they're both very funny. 
If you uh, have some time and are looking to see a show, go see them tonight. And uh, that would be Wednesday, September 22nd. But my show last night, I had Zach Townsend and Connor Larson on there. And I came up, they're both from Florida and now live in Nashville. So I said, this is the funniest comics to live in that are from Florida that now live in Nashville. And uh, I thought that was great. And uh, I used that a lot last night. And uh, I don't know if the audience enjoyed it uh, at all, but they did enjoy Connor and Zach Townsend. And it was a fun show. It was one of my smaller turnouts at Zany's that I've had in quite a while. But to be honest with you, I enjoyed it. It let me get weird. And uh, gosh, I had a good time. I wish I had a different word than weird. Um but I, to me, it's just something like with comedy, I feel like there is you can be very uh, matter of fact and to the point. And this is the joke I'm trying to tell you. Here is the punchline. Or it can be about um, more about hand movements and, and, and cadence and taking them on a little bit of a journey and getting to know you. And then the comedy comes out of, of getting to know you. And that's what I mean by that. Like, I like to, you know, I don't know, like become friends with the audience for an hour and then travel with me on my journey and take a peek inside my head as opposed to me just being like, I was on the street the other day and I saw this thing and it made me think of this. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm just, um, I'm just trying to find fun ways to get into jokes that's just not so run of the mill. Not that I've ever been run of the mill, but you know, it's like, I saw this commercial and made me think of this. Where, whereas there's also a way to be like, um, just uh, a fun, I like to get really quiet on stage and slow, but I think there's a way to do that. You can only do that if the audience is willing to go with you on that ride. If they're not, they need you to hit them with jokes. And I find that a lot of times when I'm doing the bigger clubs, I'm like, oh, I got to hit them with jokes. And that's fine. I can hit people with jokes. All right. And then this weekend, starting tomorrow, September 23rd, I'm going to be at Tampa, Florida at Side Splitters Comedy Club. I've been going to this club for years. It's one of my favorites. I love going there. And I'll be there for seven shows. That's the most shows I've done in a weekend uh, in quite some time. So I'll be doing seven shows, one show on Thursday, the 23rd, two on Friday, the 24th, three on Saturday, the 25th, and then one on Sunday, the 26th. It's going to be a really great time. I hope to see you guys down there. If you're in the area, uh, I don't know when I'll be back in the area. I don't know when I'll be back to Florida. I don't have any other Florida on my calendar right now at all. This is it. So if you're in Sarasota, if you're in Tampa or any of the surrounding area, make the trip. It's going to be fun. Connor Larson is opening for me, and we always have a great fun time together. So make the show, make the trip, come see it. It's going to be a blast. All right, and that's it. That's where we've been, where we're going.
And now, um, the um, I'd like to talk about this. I know that I've talked about this before. But lately, I've been thinking about it and how I want to talk about it as a joke. And I want to try to make uh, tell this story as a joke on stage. And I thought, you know, the best way, I think, would be for me to just kind of tell the whole story on the podcast and just see what comes out of it. And, um, and you know, just have some fun with it. And then... Um, uh, I don't know, basically just tell you the story. I don't know that it'll be funny, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit and then see where it goes. 9-11 just, you know, was uh, earlier this month, September 11th, and this is sort of my 9-11 story, but in also not any kind of way, because I made this, <laughs> I made, I was making this statement to some friends over you know, the latest 9-11, because whenever 9-11 comes around, everybody used to go on, and they still do to some extent, and they'll post about where they were at when 9-11 happened. And I kind of made the statement, and I do think it's true, unless you're like an army person or or a, a medical person, a firefighter, a policeman was directly involved in it, had a relative that was killed in it. Nobody cares, right? Nobody cares that you were like, I was in my classroom when 9-11 happened and this is how I felt, <laughs> right? And I don't mean to demean your feelings, but I mean, it's like, unless you were directly affected, it's like every, you know, we all want to make ourselves part of something just so we, you know, like Norm McDonald just died, which is very sad. And I recently had, uh, you know, I posted a video uh, about my Last Comic Standing experience and the journey that I had with Last Comic Standing. And I did a long video about it, about a 20-minute video. And I say this, that Norm MacDonald, and I always say it, I've said it several times even on this podcast, but, you know, the judges were uh, Keenan Ivory Waynes, Roseanne, and Norm MacDonald, Right now, all of these people I've watched to some extent. Keenan Ivory Wayans, I think, is involved in the scary movie series. Uh, probably was on In Living Color. Uh, he's done several movies. I've always liked him. I thought he was funny. I don't know his stand up. And then Roseanne, I grew up watching her show, and I got to open for Roseanne not too long ago. And then, well, uh, you know, long enough ago, several years ago. And then Norm Macdonald. I've always been a fan to some extent, right? Like I liked him on SNL and then, you know, uh, any of the Adam Sandler movies and pretty much anything that Norm MacDonald has been in has been really funny to me. So I did Last Comic Standing and they were the judges. And um, the um, Keenan Ivory Wayans, I did my little stuff about fish jokes I had my and then Keenan Ivory Wayans was like uh ah, I didn't really like it you did too many fish jokes and I'm going okay and then Roseanne goes you didn't really have a you didn't really have a you had a begin she said you had a middle but no beginning no ending something like that and I was like okay I don't understand what that means and then Norm Macdonald said um uh you know material comes and goes but you have a great voice I think you have what it takes to be a great comic 
And that meant a lot to me because Norm MacDonald was kind of the guy that was hard on people the entire time. And so I was like, wow, that's really nice of him to say. So that video lived on YouTube for a while. And then one day, I never really do these sorts of things, but one day I just decided to uh, uh, share it on, on um, Twitter. And, you know, I'm just trying to get the video out there. And I thought I'll tag Norm McDonald. And I said, this is what I tweeted. I said, here's a video about me being on Last Comic Standing where Norm McDonald gave me a very nice compliment. And then I shared the video. And then, much to my surprise, Norm McDonald came on. And this was in May, May 30th of this year. Norm McDonald comes on and he goes, hey, Dusty, I remember you well and have followed your career since Last Comic Standing. I told everyone those fish jokes. One thing about failure, it makes for the best stories. If you only have three minutes, it makes complete sense to use them all on one subject. Peace. You're having a great time. Okay. And that blew me away because in order for Norm MacDonald to, um, now he said, you're having a great time. I always say we're having a good time. So he could have just picked that up from my Twitter. But in order to know about the fish jokes, he would have had to, uh, you know, know that that's what I was talking about. He would have had to watch the video. And the video was about 20 minutes long. So it means a lot to me that know that Norm MacDonald um, um, watched that video and then gave me those nice compliments. And when he died... I wanted to share that on my Instagram and I just chose not to because I'm like, you know, this guy died and I want to just, um, you know, there's a, a Bible verse that says something to the effect of it's better to enter a house of mourning than a house of feast, something like that. And I just feel like we all want to celebrate people's lives when they people when people die, but you know what? Sometimes it's sad. It's like when you like Norm Macdonald was not my friend. We were not close. I'm not crying over his death. But it's sad when certain people die, especially artists or I don't know, people close to you because you know that you no longer will be receiving any of what they had. You know, Norm MacDonald was always good for funny jokes. Even if he wasn't in a lot of movies, whenever you see him, you knew he was always good for something funny and some interesting insight. And when a person dies, you know that you no longer will get that from them anymore. And uh, I think that's sad. And I just wanted to not make it about me. And no offense to anyone who, who shared stuff with him. Because, I mean, they maybe have been friends with him. So I don't. I wasn't friends with him. I did share it on Twitter. I retweeted it a few days later. And now I'm talking about it here. But, and I may even share it on Instagram yet. But just in the moment, it just didn't feel right to do it. I just was like, you know what? Just let it, let it happen. And it is sad that he's gone. Um, but I didn't want to make it about me. And in the same way, I don't want to make 9-11 about me. Because it's not about me. It's a very sad and tragic day where people died. So this is my story, and it's not really about 9-11. It just has a moment about it. 
All right, I graduated high school in 2000 in a town called Opelika, Alabama. I went to Opelika High School and I graduated and I did nothing for a summer but hang out with my friends and smoke weed. I mean, that and, and other things. But that's basically what we did. We hung out at my mom's house. My mom was, uh, you know, she was gone. She was, uh, you know, doing some things. She, she had a job. She was staying with my grandmother. She had a boyfriend. She would just, you know, spend time off, you know. And I was, you know, I was an adult of sorts now. So we hung out at her house, and that's what we did. We partied for a summer. And then when the summer was over, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to get a job, and I'm maybe going to go to college. So I signed up for community college at Southern Union, and uh, my main motivation, I'll be completely honest, my main motivation was to try and meet a woman or some women. I uh, was not some ladies man in high school, but I at least had the opportunity to be around women and meet women. And now I'm hanging out at my mom's house with a bunch of my dude friends, and I'm not having a lot of luck with the ladies. Imagine that. I'm unemployed and I'm smoking a lot of weed. Uh, you don't meet a lot of women that way. So I signed up for community college and I had no women in my classes. I took each class one time and I said, okay, that's enough. I'm not taking these classes to sit in here with a bunch of dudes and learn English. I don't care. I already know how to speak pretty well <laughs> and, uh, and I know how to write decently. So then I dropped that. I started working at Papa John's. I had some luck here and there with that. But my uh, friend, Chris Clearman, had, I probably shouldn't say his name, his full name, but it doesn't matter. I've said it now. He was, he had moved to Atlanta and I wanted to move to Atlanta with Chris, but various things happened. Chris started dating a girl named Jessica who lived in Auburn. And then Chris started spending more time in the area. So, and I may have my timeline a little off on that, but it doesn't matter. And, uh, so I ended up not, not moving with Chris. So then I started um, working at Western Sizzlin. Uh, and I had already worked at Western Sizzlin one time, but I started working there. And I actually was having a lot of fun, but I was pretty confused about what to do with my life. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I was just working at Western Sizzlin and smoking weed with my buddies. And I would usually smoke weed before I went into work at Western Sizzlin. And uh, so one day I'm in there, I'm working. And this old man had been coming in. He was a construction worker and he had been coming in every day for about a week. And, you know, we had gotten to not be friends, but be familiar with each other. So we're talking. And one day he's telling me about... Uh, joining the army. And he was like, when he was younger, he talks about how much he enjoyed the army and how many places he got to travel and where he got to go. And also when I was working at Papa John's, there was a guy that I worked with who told me about how he was in the Navy and how much fun he had in the Navy. So as this guy in Western Sizzlin is telling me about this, the memories of this other guy is coming up to me. And I'm thinking, you know what? I want to travel. I want to see some things. This was uh, this was 2001 at this point, and we're in a period of peace. Now, for a lot of the people listening to this, you may not know that America had a period where we weren't involved in a war. That being said, there could be wars going on that I didn't know about. 
But in general, the consensus was that America was not in a war. We had been in desert storm. And then in this period, we were not in war. And then in my mind, America hadn't lost a war since Vietnam. And that was 30 years ago. And I was like, I had this attitude of who's going to mess with America. Right. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I will sign up for the army and I'll get out of this town and I'll see the world. I'll get some money for college and um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go to college. And I had this whole plan worked up. I was going to join the army and and so and and make this money and go to college and never have to see a day of war. And it was going to be great. So I left Western Sizzling and I went down to the recruiter's office and I told I walked in and I said, I want to join the army. So we sat down and we started talking and they asked me, did I smoke weed? And I said, yes. And they said, how much? And then they said, are you doing like a joint a week or, or what? And it was like, they were so far off to how much weed I was smoking that I was embarrassed to tell them. So what they said was they said, all right, this is what we'll do. You know, you got to stop smoking weed, but we'll give you a drug test now. And, um, you know, um, you know, we'll give you a drug test now and then um, uh, we'll start. You start exercising. We'll tell you what to do. Stop drinking dark liquids. Just drink water and like Sprite and stuff like that. And your system will get cleansed out. And I was like, okay, great. So I, I started doing that. I, I quit smoking weed. I started running. I was smoking cigarettes too. I stopped doing that. I started getting into shape. I was running. I was doing push-ups. I got so into it. I was so ready to be in the army. And so we're going through this whole process. Then I have to go down and take a test. I don't know how well I did on the test, but I figured that what I would do, I got signed up for a job. And I got a particular signing bonus for getting that job. And I was going to be a cook. That's what I was going to be in the army was a cook. And then I was going to go, I think I was going to be, I was going to do boot camp at Fort Bragg, uh, maybe Fort Knox. And I was going to get stationed at Fort Bragg, something like that. And then I was going to do um, the one in Columbus, Georgia, whatever that is. I forget now. I grew up right next to it but I was going to do airborne training. And with airborne training, I was going to get uh, another signing bonus. So I had quite a bit of money coming to me in the thousands. At the time, it was like, dang, I'm going to be rich right away. And I was going to be a cook. So I had it worked out in my mind. This was my whole entire plan. I was going to go to the army. I was going to get this money and then I was going to get free college and I was going to go, I was going to take the training of cooking that I would get in the army and I would carry that over, use that money for, um, for culinary school. And then I would learn to be a chef and then I would open my own restaurant. That's what I wanted to do. I was always a creative person. I took lots of art classes and I thought, this is my path. I will have my own business and I will learn to cook and I will really get into this and this is gonna be a lot of fun. So over that month, I got really in shape. I started learning the, uh, the alphabet, the Greek, Greek alphabet. Uh, I was doing all those things. I got really into the army and I was working at Western Citizen. I had a crush on this girl that worked there and I was like, you know, I was such a, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know the word to describe, but I, I was a weak man 
And I was, I wanted to ask this girl out, but I never would ask her out. And I, I was such a weak man. And, uh, but I was like, oh, I'm going to the army. I was like, don't, don't get married while I'm gone. You know, just trying to be like, uh, once I'm out of the army, I'll ask you on a date. <laughs> and, uh, so I just got really into it and I was like, all right, here we go. And then I went and I took my, I tried to get my friend Adam to sign up for the army with me and he, he was going to do it. And then all of a sudden the last minute, he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. So I go down the morning of, we get picked up and I, my friend, I have a friend, Bubba McCluskey, who's also going to the army, the physical, the same day as me. And I'm like, oh, that's really fun. So we take the shuttle down there and we go to the uh, Montgomery, Alabama, where we go to the you know, the physical, the big physical. And, uh, you know, I don't know what we do the first day. This has been, geez, this has been like 18 years ago. I don't remember what we do the first day, but that night a bunch of people are partying and they're drinking. And I'm like, I don't know. I was like, I love to party, but I'm like, I'm here to do a thing. I'm gotten serious with this. This is what I'm here to do. And my, my drug test is still not exactly clear. So my recruiter tells me, he's like, listen, this is what you want to do. You want to be drinking water constantly. He says, oh, oh, this is another thing I forgot. The recruiters are basically teaching me to lie to the government, okay? Uh, the government teaching me to lie to the government to get into the government. They had this sheet of this questionnaire. It was like a health questionnaire that, that I was to fill out. And, I, and they wanted me to fill it out and then write yes or no what kind of health issues I had. And I never really had any health issues. I mainly had acid reflux. But as you're, as I'm filling it out, those are questions. So there's a couple of them that I write yes to. And then the main recruiter there, I take it to him and he, he, he looks at it and he goes, okay, good. He goes, uh, he goes, you know, you, he said that the job of this physical is to keep you out of the army. And he says, you see all of these things where you wrote yes. He goes, if you write yes, they're not going to let you in the army. He didn't say, don't write yes, but he just said, if you write yes, they're probably not going to let you in. So he said, I'm going to give you another one to fill out. And if you want to get in, you know, fill it out in a way that's going to get you in. So I said, okay. So I went and I wrote all no's and they said, okay, great. So then I go to the physical and he says, I want you to be drinking so much water that water never has time to set in your system because you're going to take a drug test tomorrow and you want that water to just be flowing right through you. So we wake up super early in the morning. We eat, uh, I don't know, I thought it was a pretty decent breakfast. Everybody talked about how awful the breakfast was and I was actually like, I don't know. Uh, that's a pretty good breakfast to me. Eggs, bacon, biscuits. I was like, I love that. And so we go and all day we're doing physical stuff and I got to pee. They will not let you pee. I mean, the pee is building up inside me. I have drank so much water and we're doing the full thing. We're going in, we're doing, we're sitting in a sound booth and they're giving me hearing test. We're going into a place, they're giving me vision test. We go into a room where we all have to get into our underwear and they're checking all our reflexes and we're walking around in, in like a duck and we're dropping down to our knees and we're standing up and they're 
just checking us out. And they, we go, I go into a room with an old man and I have to, you know, he has to look at my, uh, uh, look at my junk. And then I have to spread my butt cheeks apart for this guy. He does not touch me, but he looks, I often wonder, was that something that everybody did or did he just want to check me out? And then, um, we, um, there was three people. They, they my recruiter told me they're going to ask you about drugs. He said, no matter what answer, no to them. So the first one is like a regular dude. He goes, you ever smoked weed or had any hallucinogenic drugs? And I was like, no, sir. And he goes, okay, thank you. And then the next one is a big bearded, intimidating man. The same people that looked at inside my spread butt cheeks. And he said, have you ever done any, smoked any weed or had any hallucinogenic drugs? And I was like, no, sir. And he said, okay. And then the third one was like a real attractive girl that you sit down at a desk with. And she's like, hey, you know, she's like super cool and hip. She's like, hey, man, you know, no big deal. Just checking. Have you ever smoked any weed or had any hallucinogenic drugs? You know, and she's like a hot girl. So I wanted to be like, yeah, I, I am super cool. You know what I mean? Of course I've done those. And, uh, but I'm like, no, nope, never done them. She goes, okay, great. And then finally I get to the drug test. I have to pee so bad. I think my entire body has filled with pee at this point. And we have to walk up to these three stalls and, uh, our urinals, not stalls, urinals. There's no stalls at all. And we have to stand there. And then there is a man sitting in a chair, eye level with our penises, and he's looking into the urinal to make sure that we're not cheating on the drug test. Now, I got the urinal right next to this man. So this man is about a foot away from my penis. And I don't know if you have sh shy bladders or not, but uh, I don't really. I'm not particularly comfortable with a man or woman, for that matter, staring at my penis as I pee. But um, what do you do? I'm joining the army hoping that I'm not getting that job. Do you know what I mean? So I'm standing there at the urinal and that guy's watching me. And then I pee fine because I had to pee so bad. So I pee into my cup. I don't know if I passed a drug test or not. I, I imagine I did. Um, and then we go, we have lunch, and then we do they, what they called like a, a, a soft swearing in, like an initial swearing in. The official comes once you get to boot camp. So we get all that done. I get all signed up. I'm getting shipped off August 27th, 2001. That's when I'm going to get shipped off to boot camp. August 27th, two thousand and one. I don't remember exactly what the date is at this point, but, but I imagine a month before. So we do all that and then we get on the bus and we come home. And one of my recruiters is there and he says to me, he says, good job today. And he says, listen, I shouldn't tell you this, but I know you like to smoke weed. And he said, so if you're going to do it, do it tonight or this weekend, because you're going to get shipped off in a month and they're going to drug test you again. So if you do it this weekend, it'll be out of your system uh, by the time you get shipped off. And I said, okay, great. But I wasn't really interested in doing it. I had already quit and I wasn't really interested in doing it. So that night I go out to a party, a little party at my friend Will's house and we're hanging out. 
I don't know if I'm, I don't think I'm drinking. And I think I took one hit of weed. I just wasn't interested. I was hanging out. And while I was hanging out at this party, uh, I get it. I don't know if I got a text. I don't even know if I was into texting at that point. I might've gotten a phone call uh, from a girl um, from who was living in the trailer park that I grew up in and would later live in. But she called, and, and I didn't know her, but she had a friend, and she wanted to hang out. So I thought, well, that'll be great. Uh, let's do that. So my friend Jimmy was with me, and I was like, Jimmy, do you want to go meet these girls? And Jimmy said yes. So we went out. We, got, we were leaving, and this other guy, a friend of ours, uh, he said, uh, hey, I got these two beers here that I'm not going to drink unopened beers do you guys want these and we said well yeah we'll take those and so we get in the car and all we got to do is not open the beers but we're trying to be cool and we we go ahead and crack open the beers and we're not even really drinking them i bet i took a sip but i'm i'm 19 years old and i'm just driving along and we pull up behind this cop on the interstate and i don't want to pass the cop but he's going pretty slow. So I go, all right. And because what I was thinking was my exit is next. I don't want to pass the cop and then immediately get right off on the exit. I'll just ride behind him. But he's going so slow that he made it uncomfortable for me. So I go, all right, well, I'll pass him. And then I pass him and I get off on my exit and then he gets off on the exit. And I had been told before that if a cop's ever behind you and you're worried about it, pull over into a parking lot, cut the car off, take the keys out and get out. And he can't pull you over if you're already pulled over. I don't know if that's true, but it crossed my mind when I saw a gas station, but I thought, you know what, we're fine. So I just kept driving. And then I'm getting close to where I got to go and the lights come on. He pulls me over and I have two open beers in the center console. So I don't know what to do so I just stuffed them underneath the seat, right? They spill out in the car, obviously making the car smell like beer. And everybody always acts like that was such a stupid move. Oh, you just spilled the beer in your car? What an idiot. And I'm like, well, I don't know what you want me to do. It's either I spill it out in the car or I leave it in the center console and let him see it when he walks up to the car. So the idiot move was opening the beer in the first place. So he comes up, he says, you've been drinking that night. I said, no. And he goes, well, step outside the car. And then he asked to, he says to, he says, I got a whole joke that I do on this, but I'm basically going to give the whole joke away here. But he goes, uh, blow on my face. And, uh, and I was like, I was just happy that he said face, you know? And uh, so he said, blow on my face. So I blew on his face and he's like, be honest with me. You've been drinking tonight? And he goes, all right. I goes, all right. I've had a couple of sips. I was thirsty. Now I wasn't thirsty, but I had only had a couple of sips of beer. So he puts me in the car for, he's like, you're under arrest for consumption of alcohol, underage consumption of alcohol. And I go, shh, this is going to mess me up, you know? And he's talking to me out there and I was like, it's just going to mess me up. You know, I joined the army and he was a real, and I, pardon my language, but he was a real dick about it. He goes, oh, this is going to mess you up or you're going to mess yourself up. And I was like, all right, whatever, you know. And, uh, and then he sets me in the car and then he, he, he gets Jimmy. 
And Jimmy comes, sits in the car, and then he puts his head into the window and he goes, oh, by the way, you're also under arrest for possession of marijuana. And then I heard him say, now, this guy pulled me over and then another cop had pulled up. And this cop was a cousin of a guy I was in high school with. Uh, so he pro he knew my name and he knew that I, I partied quite a bit. And, uh, and then I heard the guy who arrested me go, he was kind of a fat guy and he goes, fat guys on a roll. And I just always thought that was funny. It was like, you're, um, a grown man, police officer, and you're arresting a kid that's just told you that he's joined the army and is getting shipped off. So obviously going to make a better life for himself. You're arresting him. You won't charge him with a DUI because you know he's not drank enough alcohol to actually uh, probably be charged with that. So you're going to arrest him for underage consumption. And then you're going to charge him with possession of marijuana. Now, this is what happened with that. My friend Jimmy had weed on him and he took it out of his pocket and stuffed it in his beer bottle and put it under his seat. So when they found the beer bottle, I got charged with the, the weed too because it was in my car. Now, I'm not mad at Jimmy. I've made peace with him. So I go to jail and uh, there was a couple of people in, uh, in my jail cell that one guy that I knew, kind of, I knew we at least had a connecting guy. And then there was another guy down the hall in jail that knew me. And he yelled out, he goes, Dusty, you know, and it was pretty fun. Uh, other than the fact that I'm in jail and ruining my life. Um, and then I was in there, I called my brother-in-law and uh, he came, I had the money. He came, picked up my debit card and went and got the money out and then bailed me out. And he says it was a tow truck. He said it was a giant tow truck. I always thought it was a dump truck, but I said, my brother-in-law came to pick me up from jail in a dump truck. A tow truck is not that much difference, but I said a dump truck. And I said, turns out my nightmare was a five-year-old's dream to get to ride in a police car and a dump truck all in one day. And uh, so he takes me home and then I have to tell my parents that I went to jail and that's a whole issue. And uh, even though I'm an adult at this point, I mean, I know I'm still seeming acting like a kid, but I am an adult. Um, and then on Monday, I had to go into my recruiter's office and tell them that I had been arrested. And so the uh, my court date is going to be coming after my ship-off date. So I will miss my, uh, my, my ship-off date. I can't be shipped off to the Army if I have a court date here in in you know, in Opelika. So it's going to, you know, mess, basically cancel out what I've done. So my recruiter comes, shows up to my house one day, just banging on my door. He will not leave until I come down. I mean, this guy was never, ever, ever going to leave. If I had not came down, I would still be locked in the house and he would still be knocking on that door. So we said, we got to go to Montgomery, man. We got to try to get your ship off date moved. And at this point, I was like kind of happy that I wasn't going to the army anymore. So I was kind of bummed out by this. So he drove me down. He concocted a story, another lie. He said, this is what we're going to tell him. We're going to tell him that you got a big family reunion that you're going to go to and that you cannot miss this family reunion. And you just want to kind of delay your ship off date. So we drive to Montgomery, we make this appeal, the appeal gets denied, and I'm happy. 
So then I get a, a, a lawyer. Some of this stuff may be off. I get the lawyer and I think I'm frustrated again. And I tell the lawyer, I go, you know what? I just want to join the army. I just want to get out of here and I just want to join the army. And he said, okay. And so then one day I'm driving around and it hits me. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to go to the army. So I drive down, I kind of burst into his lawyer's office. And I said to him, I said, hey, I don't want to go to the army anymore. And so, um, because it, I, it maybe occurred to me that I was going to lose all of my stuff. I was going to lose my signing bonus. I was going to be infantry. I was not going to be a cook. I was not going to be airborne. I was going to lose all of what I wanted uh, by, by joining the way I did. So I said, I don't want to do any of that. So he said, okay. So I'm no longer going to the army. That's official, but I'm still waiting my court date. And then on the morning of 9-11, I'm laying on my couch knowing that my ship off date was August 27th. So I missed my ship off date. So on the morning of 9-11, I, I would be in boot camp. My sister calls me. She goes, a building, an airplane just crashed into the World Trade Center. And I'm pretty stupid. And I don't even think I knew what the World Trade Center was. I was like, what? She goes, just turn on the news. So I turned on the news and just in time to see the second plane fly into a building. And I still don't even really know what I'm seeing. But I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. And um, it didn't occur to me, I don't think, till years later that, wow, I would have been in the army when this happened and probably would have gotten shipped off. And in my mind, I was like, who's going to mess with America? I'll never have to go to war. I'll just get my free money and chill. And we've been in war ever since. Um, so in between going to court, I... Uh, moved into the trailer that I grew up in, in the trailer park where I went to meet the girls. And then uh, I got a job at Office Depot and I was working at Office Depot and then I went to court. And it cost me about $2,000 for my lawyer. My brother-in-law let me borrow the money. Uh, and I, um, so it cost me about $2,000 I bought the trailer. Now, the trailer that I moved into, I bought for $1,000. Um, and, and that's what I lived in. So my brother-in-law let me borrow $2,000 to have a lawyer. And then when I got into court, my lawyer, basically, I felt like he let me down. But basically, I think what he said was, I had it all worked out for you to go to the army. And then when you came into my office and said you didn't want to do that, I had to change some things. But I got two years unsupervised probation, which meant I was, um, which meant I, I had probation. I had a like a six month jail sentence um, suspended, meaning that if I got in trouble in that two years, I would go to jail for six months. But I didn't have to take drug tests. I didn't have to do monthly visits or weekly visits with a counselor, which was nice. And then I, I got 40 hours community service, so I had to go pick up trash uh, with the city. I got um, my 
I had about $800 in fines, which was, which actually I had to, my mom had to take me to get a loan. I got a small loan to pay off, uh, to pay off the fines because I didn't have the money. Um, and I think if you don't have the money, you go to jail. And then I got my driver's license suspended for nine months. So I got no license for nine months, um, two years unsupervised probation, $800 in fines, $2,000 in uh, lawyer fees, and 40 hours community service, all for a little bit of weed and a couple of sips of alcohol. And did it teach me a lesson? That's what some people say. Well, I bet you learned your lesson. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't learn my lesson. From that, so what happened was I moved into the trailer. I ended up doing a smoking a bunch of weed and drinking a bunch. And then when I moved to Charleston, I I drank and drove for about ten years, and uh, with beer in the car all the time. That's like I didn't learn a lesson. I ended up wrecking a car while I was drunk, and I got pulled over a couple of times. I didn't learn a lesson. This guy arrested me. And the only thing, the silver lining for me is that I didn't go to the army. I'm like, wow, that actually is the blessing in all of this. But a policeman uh, took me away from the army and what he thought, oh, fat guy's on a roll. When he could have really asked me about that, he goes, oh, are you going to the army? And then he could have probably drove me home and told my parents. And then I would have gone to the army. And he could have said, listen, I could arrest you tonight and you could be in a lot of trouble. But instead, since you're going to the army, I'm going to let you out. So for the next little while, I saw Jimmy's dad a couple of times. Now, a little history with Jimmy. Jimmy is still my friend. I like him a lot. But he got in trouble one time at my house. He got real drunk and he slapped this guy's face and that guy drove off. And I'm pretty sure the guy called the cops on the party. And um, and he... Um, and then so he showed up and then I got in trouble with the police and Jimmy got in trouble with the police. But Jimmy only got in trouble for one. It was his fault. He's probably the reason the cops got called. And because he was sitting out in his car, uh, hanging out the window with throw up on the side of the car where he was so drunk, he went and passed out. It wasn't my fault. And then Jimmy got arrested with me. Also, not really. Well, I guess that was my fault, but it was his fault. He got arrested with the weed. But. His dad confronted me a couple of times in pub. One time he came to my house telling me I should take the blame for the whole thing. And maybe I should have. I don't know. But uh, I was a kid. I didn't know what to do. I was actually mad at Jimmy because I was like, you want me to take the blame? The weed wasn't even mine. And then he confronted me at a Papa Joe's barbecue one time about it. And uh, But I get it. From his standpoint, he probably thought, man, my son never was in trouble until he started hanging out with Dusty. But I also was never in trouble until I started hanging out with Jimmy. But when I moved from the trailer, I think I sold the trailer for about $3,500. So I bought it for $1,000, sold it for $3,500. I was able to pay my brother-in-law back from the lawyer and then still take $1,500 with me to Charleston. And, uh, and that's how I started my trip to Charleston. So... And then in Charleston is where I started doing comedy, and now that's what I do now. So that's my 9-11 story and my Army story, and I appreciate you listening to that. Come see me this weekend in Tampa. Thank you very much. We're having a good time.